0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. This past week I covered the death of Baghdadi and how that proved that U.S. military power abroad was a net good for the United States. I also wrote about how the ridiculousness of the national media was shown when they started fact-checking dog memes that the White House was putting out. And yes, that was a real thing this week. The New York Times and other news organizations were literally fact-checking a dog meme, the dog in question being the one that helped chase down Baghdadi and ended in his death. So... You know, if you're looking for good journalism out there, just know that the New York Times and others are looking out for your interest by fact-checking memes that you would see on Instagram. I also wrote about the politics of impeachment in the newsletter this week and just looked at the overall political fundamentals that are shaping up and shaping the overall dynamics that will move impeachment in the coming months and probably over the next year as we move into the election. There's a lot of polling dynamics, and I'll get into some of that today because we're going to talk one of the things we're get into is the generic ballot, what those numbers are, and just what the dynamics are around that and how it's impacting impeachment and other things. This podcast is powered by Podcast One. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Contact information for that, as well as sign-up links for everything I've mentioned so far, can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and others. Please be sure to leave a five-star review because that helps other people like you find us later on. So please leave those reviews. That help us move up, and it also helps me apply you some of that feedback and make the show better. This week I'm covering a few quick hits on Bader O'Rourke and Katie Hill before moving into the main topics for this week which are Elizabeth Warren's latest plan to pay for Medicare for all, the surprising numbers that I was telling you about before about the generic ballot. One of the surprising numbers is that the generic ballot was showed as a tie and I'll go through why that's a surprising result to see. And finally we're wrapping up with a discussion of the term Latin X. I've seen this pop up a lot in CNN debates and among academics, a lot on social media of certain types of accounts where they're using the term Latinx to refer to everyone of Hispanic descent or Latino or Latino. Just everyone who is Hispanic in the United States. It's a new term that popped up. And so I looked it up and I saw some people were talking just in polling and stuff of what that term means and who he is and is not using it. And we'll get into more than that later. So first up this week are the quick hits on Beto Wart and Katie Hill. Um, First up is Beto. So Beto dropped out this week. He's probably the first real big tier candidate who has dropped out of the presidential campaign race so far. Everybody else has been small fries, people like Eric Swalwell, and just low-tier candidates who didn't have that much impact overall. Beto is the first big name who just got a lot of media attention, primarily because he lost to Ted Cruz in a Senate race in Texas that appeared closer than it actually was. Part of the reason that race was so close is that Ted Cruz is pretty—he's not that likable of a guy, just frankly—and that hurt him in that race. Even though the governor in that race, he far outpaced uh, the distance between Beto and Cruz, which is—I believe I remember right—it was about three to four points between the end between the two of them in the end. Anyway, Beto's big claim to fame was that he came close against Ted Cruz in Texas. Democrats Bob jumped dropped a lot of money on this campaign. The national media was out in force. Beto got all kinds of glowing profiles from places like Vanity Fair and others. Just a lot of glossy things. And so when he lost that, he could have stayed in Congress and kept his seat there. But the national media, all that exposure, he read his own stuff and decided to run for president. And he flamed out in pretty spectacular fashion like I said, he he read his own press clippings in this case. It was pretty apparent, if you know anything about politics and follow a lot of electoral politics, he was going to lose that race in Texas. That was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Texas may have some shifting demographics in it. They're nowhere close to where it needs for someone like Beto to win in that state. It just wasn't going to happen. And so when he entered this Presidential race, he had nothing effectively to run on except all this name recognition that he had drummed up and the donor network that he had built running for that, which, you know, that is worth something, but it's not going to get you a presidential nomination, especially when a loaded field like this, which has a lot of cloud, crowd favorites on the national level. And so, what Beto did is he was used by the media. They just flat-out used him. They built him up in Texas, and after that, he had no worth to them, even though they gave him all these glossies. Even when he entered the race, he had this big spread in Vanity Fair that was just gaudy-looking, and it didn't matter. The media pumped him up as some kind of JFK. I had friends, both sides, who were asking me all about him because he had all these fancy things in the media. But here he is, and he effectively has no future now. He took stranger and more extreme positions the longer he was in the race. Things like actual gun confiscation, talking about taking people's AR-15s. He talked about taxing churches if if they didn't hold to a progressive view on gay marriage. And all of these were just increasingly more extreme views. And other candidates in the race were having to either disavow or ignore him altogether. And he just finally had to bow out. In some ways, it is a little sad. I mean, I don't feel too bad for him just because he's gotten all this attention. But it is sad in some ways because he, well, like I said, he was used. The media used him and then just chucked him to the side and let him keep doing all of these things. And they kept pumping air into him until they had no more worth. They just had no more use for him. And so now he has no political career. I mean, he's in Texas. You can't run in Texas on gun confiscation, and taxing churches. That is, the worst position I think I can come up with are those two, if you're going to run in Texas. The other famous person there was Wendy Davis, and she ran on a very loud pro-abortion platform. And it was very obvious that she was going to lose her race in Texas, too, but the media pumped her up at the time, and it was ridiculous. This was ridiculous, And the only reason that he got all this attention is that he was a Democrat and he was going up against an unpopular Republican, and now he's worthless and has no more career. So this isn't just the end of Beto's presidential run. He really has no future unless he lands some gig like at MSNBC. This is pretty much it politically for him. You're not going to see any more of Beto in the near term or even the long term. He has a serious rehab issue that he's going to have to go through before he's ever viable for any office ever again, at least from my vantage point. The second thing I wanted to hit real quick was also Katie Hill, who officially resigned and is out this week. She spent her last speech in Congress complaining about how she was being forced out by her sexuality and the nude photos that were released of her and how people were just enjoying and gawking over all of those different things. And the white knight media defenders that she has were happily backing her up, talking about how this was just wrong and how this young woman was being forced out because of nude photos and revenge porn and she was being abused by her husband. And that's not what happened here at all. The reason she resigned is two reasons. First, Nancy Pelosi forced her out because Pelosi doesn't want to deal with all of this. The second reason she resigned is far more... Direct for her, she resigned before the House launched an ethics investigation into her for sleeping with her staffers and her campaign officers. That's why those are, there are rules in the House that you cannot do this because there is a direct power imbalance between a person of a member of Congress and all these different staffers, and Congress doesn't want that. They already have this problem with with taxpayers paying for some of these hush cases where they're paying we're paying for our tax our tax money is going towards these lawmakers for their sexual harassment um, cases that get sealed up and you just can't have that you cannot do that in congress and so she's not being forced out because of nude photos she's being forced out because she did bad things but you'll not know that if you just watch media coverage they're all just making a big fuss about how she's being forced out because of nude photos. It's ridiculous. They're her white knight defenders. They're all wrong. But just like with Beto, where he got pumped up and then got tossed aside, right now she's being pumped up because they want to push this certain vantage point that her sexuality is a good thing. She's the... She's the thing they want to push right now because if you go into a lot of these different newspapers and various places, they're all pushing these polyamorous relationships as the new thing that everyone needs to explore more. So it's really more of them projecting what they want on her instead of defending her conduct. Her actual conduct is very bad, and she's resigning because she doesn't want to have to answer for that conduct. And that's what's really happening here. And you'll note the other thing here... They're defending a person here, Katie Hill, who sexually abused her staff in this case, and how they're defending her on their side. These are the same companies and the same people who defended Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose. So it really shouldn't be that big of a surprise here that they're willing to go out and protect somebody like Katie Hill. She's not on their same level, but they're willing to take that step because they've already defended far worse. NBC is still defending themselves and saying that Ronan Farrell's book, Talking about how they blocked his story. How that's just a smear campaign and they're calling him a terrorist. Even though they're really guilty for doing a lot of bad things. Protecting both Lauer and Weinstein. So, these aren't great people. Probably not the greatest thing to start out on, but that's where we are. Beto's out. Katie Hill's out. And that brings us to the first major thing I wanted to hit today. Aside from all that junk. Which is Elizabeth Warren. She released this week her new health care plan. She already was out there supporting Medicare for All, but where she differed from Bernie Sanders in all of this is that she had not laid out how she was going to pay for it. And what she's released since then is just a bunch of pseudo-intellectual nonsense. Now, I have a column coming out on Monday, talking about the constitutionality of the main thing that she uses to, to pay for all of this, and that's called the wealth tax. And the wealth tax, what it does is it sums up all of your property, real estate, personal property, like art, cars, everything that you own, and then taxes you a sum based on what your entire wealth is. So it's a way to get more money out of these rich people And your tax services end up doing a lot of assessing, so they have to figure out exactly what your entire estate is worth and then go through and figure out any changes over time and how they're going to factor in what you're going to pay each of these years as it's going through. So Warren acknowledges that it would take a dramatic increase in the size of the IRS to cover all of this. And she says she'll pay for it in just this I call it pseudo intellectualism because it's the stuff that you would only hear from a professor. A lot of people on the right have joked that this is her version of she's gonna she's gonna build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. In this case, she's going to build Medicare for all and unicorns are gonna pay for it because there's nothing here that makes sense. And we know none of this makes sense from what she's saying because she wants to have this plan without having without having to say that middle-class taxes will have to go up in order to pay for it. Now, Bernie Sanders, who first pitched Medicare for All, he admits this is going to happen. He admits everything that's going to happen here because he wants this version of his plan. You have to have middle-class taxes go up to pay for it, and you have to kick everybody off their private insurance plan So that they are all on the same Medicare plan across the board. So that would happen for everybody. Bernie admits all these things. Warren is much less, she's just far more dishonest on this. She's always hiding the ball because she doesn't want to say the bad things of Medicare for All out loud. A lot of people, when they hear Medicare for All, they think one thing, that it's this great plan that'll cover everybody, we'll get socialized medicine, and people will actually have coverage. What actually happens under this plan is that every private health insurance plan in the country is immediately gone. You are kicked off that plan. Now, most people have private health insurance through their employer. Well, all those employer plans are immediately gone. The other thing that is gone is... The health insurance industry and Warren's getting questioned about that too because you're knocking, you're not just getting all these people onto Medicare, you are forcing these other people who work in the health insurance industry out of their jobs. So there's a bunch of different dynamics working here all at once, and so they all have to account for all these things. That's why the price tag on this is quite large. Now, Bernie, he doesn't lie about any of this, he admits taxes are going to have to go up on the middle class which frankly just means everybody in order to pay for it he says you know this will all uh, this will be everything that i said it is going to be and so he doesn't he doesn't lie about that at all california has rejected these types of plans in the past and i bring that up because california is a very blue state And every time they have this debate, they keep hitting the same deal where they don't have enough taxable income in their state in order to cover a Medicare-for-all type system on the state level for them. They can't afford it. So you've had these people come up and hit this again and again, and they keep saying the same thing. We can't find enough taxable income in our state to do this. It costs too much. So... If you're not going to raise taxes, you've got to figure out a way to pay for it, and you've got to figure out a way that you're going to offset all these things, all these things that you are going to happen. Because in Europe, where they're getting these ideas, all these European countries have much higher tax rates. They're far more up front that if you're going to have this socialized system, everybody's got to pay in in order to pay for it. You can't get around that fact. And that's exactly... What Lord Elizabeth Warren is trying to do here. She's inventing plans and math that literally do not exist. You cannot do what she says you can do here. Her plan does what all the other Medicare for All plans does it ends all private health insurance. Everyone is moved to Medicare. Everyone who is employed and gets all their things through private health insurance is immediately off of that. Everyone who is employed in the health insurance industry loses their jobs. The government takes on all this payments for all this health care that's going out there, and the entire health industry as we know it is overturned. Which is ironic because if you just remember, we're barely a decade removed here of the gigantic Obamacare debate where that was supposed to fix a lot of our problems. And yet here we are debating whether or not we just need to take the full step and go to socialized medicine. So taxes have to go up to cover this. Or we will go bankrupt. That's just the only way around. That's that's the only thing here. You cannot do this without raising taxes. All of the people who are honest about this point out that exact thing. And the only reason that this happens in Europe, as I said before, it's because they, they have two they have a bunch of things going in their favor. There's one, they raise taxes in order to pay for it. The other thing is, in all these European countries that have these successful socialized systems, they are subsidized by the United States. We are... Their defense systems. They basically don't have militaries that are worth even talking about that could stop anything. The United States is the world's uh, military. And so all these other bad countries out there, the reason that they don't do more is because we are out there and we could bomb them to rubble if they step too far out of line. We not only have the military, we have the military alliances in order to direct all of the massive firepower in the world and bring it to bear on these countries. So even though we have some of this return to great power influences where you have big countries like China, the United States, and Russia jockeying for various positions across the world, the United States is still the premier superpower in the world with the strongest economy, the strongest military. And if these countries had to pay for their own defense, they wouldn't be able to afford their own socialized systems. The other thing we subsidize that helps them have the socialized systems that they have is that we're also subsidizing their medical research. A lot of them just draft off of what we do because we have all the innovation over here in the United States. Now, a lot of their scientists do work with us and we build off a lot of their research, but all the big breakthroughs are coming through the United States because we have a lot more resources that we can throw through into these companies that are doing the research and finding cures for all these various illnesses. So that's an overview of the land here when it comes to socialized medicine. If these European countries that Warren, Sanders, and others are trying to emulate had to pay for their own research, had to pay for their own military, and had to just be on the same playing field as the United States, they wouldn't have socialized medicine. They would drop it immediately in order to have a country and an economy that could do all these various things. And the clip that I want to play next goes into Warren talking about how she's going to deal with some of this disruption. You've heard about a lot of her, her paying for it and doing a lot of the things along that front and all the good she says it'll do. The thing I want to touch on here is this answer in a clip she gave at a press gaggle where she was discussing how she was going to handle the disruption to the job economy where all these people who work in the health industry, especially uh, specifically health insurance, all these people who have their jobs connected with that, what she's going to do to offset all those jobs losses. Because if you don't do anything, all of a sudden people are going to watch a bill be passed and they're going to be out of a job. So then you're going to have this problem of figuring out what all these people are going to do with their careers because it's a big thing. I've got friends who work there, and so you need to know what's going to happen here. So this is Elizabeth Warren answering that question from a reporter. It's a little jumbled up because it's outdoors, but the question that the reporter asks is what is she going to do about these people who are losing their jobs in the uh, Medicare for All aftermath? All the, the people Senator. who work in private insurance and all the people even here in Des Moines who work in private health right. insurance, where do they go and work on private insurance the something? So if you've had a chance to read the plan, you'll see no one gets left behind. Uh, some of the people currently working in health insurance will work in other parts of insurance, in life insurance, in auto insurance, in car insurance. Some will work for Medicaid, and there is a five-year transition support for everyone because what this is about is how we strengthen america's middle class and how we make sure that in transitions no one gets left behind it's right there in the plan and it's fully paid for and there you have her plan which is basically go see my plan go to my website go to see it i've written a column in the past comparing elizabeth warren to mitt romney and I think that's accurate. It's because you can compare her to Mitt Romney or to John Kerry. I think they're all about the same type where it's these rich, white, upper class, northeasterners who all kind of think the same thing. Just it's this technocratic mindset where you can just go with my plan. My plan covers all these different variables. It'll cover everything. You don't have to worry about you know anything that anything going wrong here, because we have all our bases covered. It's this technocratic mindset that's not humble at all because it believes that it does have all these answers and that you don't have to worry about anything. And when you start looking at some of this, you're looking at reskilling all these people who work in health insurance and finding them new jobs in the span of five years, and that's just insane. That's not going to happen for a lot of these people. Some of them have been working for this in this industry for their entire careers, and all of a sudden you're ripping that out of, from underneath them and telling them to go do something else. So that's not going to work anywhere near as well as she thinks it does. And if you want to think back for a second during the launch of Obamacare, for the first year, the major problem for that entire program was that they couldn't get a website to work in the first year. That was their number one thing. They wanted to have all these different portals that people used to cover what plan they were going to get, and they couldn't even get the website up and running on day one. So this is Elizabeth Warren at, I would say, her worst. She's a pseudo-intellectual here. She's talking like a professor who's acting like she's above it all and has this plan that covers all these different variables. But in reality, every time she says that, it's in a way for her to avoid answering a direct question. She did the same thing during the debates, where she would get cornered by any one of the different candidates on stage, from Biden to any of the other moderates, and she would get asked by the moderators, how are you going to pay for this plan are you going to raise taxes on the middle class? And she would never have an answer. She would talk, well, she would never answer yes or no to that. She would just talk about how we, she would cut waste and she would target all these different savings that people would get so you wouldn't have to worry about all these different expenses. And she would never answer a direct question. And people kept hounding her about it over and over and over again. And this new plan, as she's calling it, does the exact same thing. It's a dodge. She doesn't want to say that this is going to raise taxes on the middle class, so she's saying all these other things to avoid saying that one direct thing because she knows it's unpopular. And frankly, every part of Medicare for All is unpopular when you poll about it. Medicare for All may sound popular, but when you ask people, hey, do you want to lose your employer-sponsored health insurance plan? Most of them say no. In fact, a very wide majority of them say no. When you ask them if they want to kick all these people out of their jobs in the health insurance industry, they say no. If you ask them if they want their taxes to go up to pay for Medicare for All, they're going to say no. When you ask them if they want government-sponsored or government-directed health insurance instead of having any other option, they're also going to say no. Medicare for All is the catchy phrase that everyone likes, but means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. With Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, we know exactly what they mean, and we know that it's awful. One of the reasons that Kamala Harris is flailing as badly as she is is because she couldn't defend a single part of Medicare for All. She claims she supported supported it, but that's all she could give it because she actually didn't want to defend anything about it. And that was a tip-off to the rest of her campaign, that she couldn't defend anything else that she pitched. It's going to be interesting to see how Elizabeth Warren defends her campaign on this front. A lot of people call her a fighter, but when it comes to this and a lot of her other proposals, when people start pushing back and showing how widely, just incredibly unwise and unfounded, unreality any of these things are, she does this dodge where she doesn't answer any of the direct questions that people want to know. She goes into pseudo-intellectual gobbledygook. Bernie, like I said, Bernie Sanders has been very honest in what he wants to do here. He wants a socialized system and he wants everyone to pay for it. That's what he wants. And even though I disagree with him, that's at least honest. You can have a debate on that idea, on whether it's good or bad to have a socialized system because he's accounting for what it's going to take. It's going to take everyone paying into a much larger government system to do it. Elizabeth Warren is not doing that. She's lying. She's lying for lack of a better word here, this is the same thing as she did, she did about her DNA test. She said she was Native American, and she used a DNA test to prove it, and now, after she got shown that that was racist of her to do, and she wasn't anything close to being a Native American, and the tribe that she claimed rejected her, now she's, she's backed off of that, and if you go to her website or her Twitter page and all that, all that suddenly just disappeared into the ether. Of course, all these conservative sites have thankfully saved it because it's hilarious to go back and watch. She's looks like she's lied or just overstated that she was fired because she was pregnant. She's done all these different things where she's always over-inflating what it is she is or what she's capable of doing. And this looks like another one of those situations. And the question is, will the media and will her rivals in the primary attack her on it? Now, she's the, most, she's the most popular person in the media. So I'm not expecting an onslaught from those in the media. But I was surprised to see that people like Ezra Klein and Fox and a few others actually did push back and say that nothing of what she said made any sense. They would support her in the end. So they're not hitting her hard, but they are saying that she hasn't answered the question here, that she's not paying for anything because her answer doesn't make any sense. This is also going to leave open an opening for people like Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and others to continue hitting her for not answering these questions and putting out this ridiculous plan that does all these things that people do not want. That's the thing. Medicare for all is a democratic primary only thing. It's health and care insurance is one of the number one issues for Democrats. It's not once you get out into the public into a general election. And the version of what they're pushing here, Medicare for all, is not what people want. So expect her to get some fire. And it'd be really interesting here if Bernie Sanders decides to jump into the fray and hit her on this point, because it's his idea, it's his plan, and he's, but so far he's chosen not to. Apparently they have some kind of pact between he and her on not hitting each other. But well, this is a very clear area where there's a difference between the two of them. He's being honest about it, and she's not. And if he actually is in this race, about winning this race then it's time for him to actually break that pact and go after on this and prove himself to be the true socialist and true progressive in the field. If he doesn't, then you, that just tells you what he's here to do. He's just here to rack up delegates and push the party. He doesn't actually want to win. So it's going to be real interesting to see what he does because this is his time to take out a chief rival in the race. He can take all of her voters if he's willing to go after her here, because his supporters are. Would we willing to do it? Because most of them are hardcore Bernie supporters. So watch that in the coming weeks, and watch and see how that's going to be a growing dynamic in the Democratic primaries. After we get back from the break, we'll cover the generic ballot, the generic ballot, and some of the interesting poll numbers that have come out recently from USA Today. All right, we're back talking about the generic ballot, the USA Today poll, and just what that tells us about the electoral fundamentals going into 2020. So this poll was USA Today slash Sulphic University. They ran this poll together. The top line, they were mainly focusing in on the Democratic primaries. They were looking at that. And in theirs, Biden was at the top of the leaderboard with 26%, followed by Elizabeth Warren with 17, Bernie at 13, and Pete Buttigieg at 10%. So, nothing overly too interesting there. That's pretty much what we've seen in a lot of the national polls. Some have Warren closer, some have her further back. Either way, Biden has a pretty strong lead in the national polls, while Elizabeth Warren has taken small but statistically significant leads in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. And if you're leading in those early states, it's a chance for you to take the overall lead once those primaries come and go after the first of the year. So that wasn't really the interesting part. The interesting part of this was the generic ballot. And what the generic ballot is, it's a question that pollsters ask that just, it doesn't put in names. It just asks people, would you rather support a Republican or a Democrat in the upcoming election? So it kind of shows you what the split is between people and whether or not they're leaning more towards Republicans or more towards Democrats. So in times like 2018, Or 2010, when, so in 2010, Republicans had a strong lead. They had an 8 to 10 point lead in the generic ballot in some polls. And in 2018, Democrats had an 8 to 10 point advantage in the generic ballot. And in both years, they saw massive wave elections for their party. So the generic ballot kind of teases out and gets us to find out what direction people are leaning, more towards Democrats or more towards Republicans and then what you can do that is you can compare that and see how a candidate compares to the generic ballot. So if your candidate is out polling and polling above the generic ballot, that tells you, all right, this person is probably a stronger than normal Democrat or Republican. They're doing better than what we would consider a baseline average politician would do in this given situation. And if they're performing under that, it kind of tells you that, okay, this person is weaker than a given average Republican or Democrat. So it sort of helps you set a baseline for what the baseline is going into election and tells you where the country may be leaning uh, one way or another. And most times in the generic ballot, Democrats have a built-in advantage. Uh, I've seen some people talk anywhere between two to four points just because when you're looking nationally, they're going to include a lot more people in these large states like New York and California, and and that just makes sense. So they're always going to have a little bit of an advantage, all things being equal. So if you are able to cancel out all the other variables Typically, a Democrat is going to have a slight lead in the generic ballot, and that just means that you're kind of at a 50-50 tie in places like the House. So it's interesting, and it kind of tells us something, if the generic ballot is close to that baseline where all things are equal or not. So in this USA Today poll, they asked two questions. They asked a congressional generic ballot, of who would they prefer in their own personal districts. And in that one, Democrats led 43% to 42%. So Democrats only had a one-point advantage there. And then they asked the actual generic ballot, I mean, yeah, the generic ballot question of who do you think should control Congress? And in that one, it was a tie, 46 to 46%. Now, this is an outlier. This poll is an obvious outlier because no other poll has even come close to showing anything like that. Um, But what it does provide us is this snapshot of a potential for this race actually in 2020 going into it. It could be tied. It could be that close where the country is literally split down the middle 50-50 and you're going to have another tied election like 2016. And in 2016, Democrats held a very very small edge in the generic ballot, and Republicans were able to gain seats and take advantage of all three branches of government. So remember, in 2018, when the wave election for Democrats, when they gained 40 seats in the House, they had, on average, around between an Around an eight-point lead in the generic ballot, and some went even higher than that. I think the last one that the New York Times put out showed around a 16-point advantage in the generic ballot. So it was a very large advantage that they had going into 2018 that has all but evaporated now, because if you toss out this poll that shows it tied and just look at the averages in both Real Clear Politics or 538, you have about a five-point. So Real Clear Politics holds the generic ballot currently at about plus five in favor of Democrats, and 538 has it at 5.7. So, between a five and six point advantage for Democrats, which is well under where they were in 2018. So, if they are about around at eight, they've lost between two to three points so far. That has shifted to Republicans. So, that advantage from the midterms has all been banished now. So the reason that this is important is that this has narrowed the generic ballot where people are leaning you know, more Republican or Democrat. It's narrowed in the past year when we've had all this news about the Mueller report, the Russia investigation wrapping up, and now this latest impeachment deal involving Ukraine and the Trump campaign. You're seeing... This narrowing of the generic ballot happening during this time when people are saying, pundits especially, are saying day in and day out, oh, it's just another bad day for Donald Trump. It's just another bad day for Republicans. How are they ever going to support themselves in the polls? And the reality of the situation is is that things have narrowed up in Republicans favor in a lot of these things. There's still the disadvantage, but it's not the disadvantage that they've been at since since, you know, 2016 when they had a lot of advantages going into that year. So it's not as bad as it could be, and a lot of these polls are narrowing. And what's really happening here with the generic ballot and some of these impeachment polls is that whether or not you want Donald Trump or Republicans in office is matching pretty much what you want on the impeachment run. There's been a narrowing of the impeachment numbers, which is something that said... Would happen early on, that the longer Democrats let this drag out and not hold a vote, the longer, the more, and you would see, support slowly come back to a mean position, so an average position in the polls. And what we've seen for support of the impeachment inquiry, looking at 538 numbers, the peak support for that was at 53.3%. So about 53% of the American public supported an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. And right now that's sitting, it's dropped three points to 50.3%. And that's the easier question of the two, because that's just talking about whether or not you want to have an inquiry, have an investigation to see whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached. So this is slowly coming back below 50%, which is why, by the way, It's so interesting that Republicans were the ones that held the line on the impeachment process vote this past week, and two Democrats joined them. Everyone's been saying all this time how it was just strange that Republicans wouldn't jump in and help out here, and it makes all the sense in the world because the political will of the public is not on Democrats' side on this. It's on Republicans. There's not enough support in the country to push these moderate Democrats into supporting impeachment. So if you have two people who are already willing to jump ship on a pure process vote that has nothing to do with whether or not an inquiry will be launched or whether or not an actual impeachment will be held, that tells you that these moderates behind closed doors, these Democrats who are in Trump territory and in places that he won in 2016, they feel the pressure to not go along with what the National Party is doing in the Democratic Party. And that's important. And so when you're saying these impeachment numbers narrow up and the generic ballot narrow up some here, it's telling you that the field is far more divided than what the media and the pundits are talking about. The other thing that lines up with all these numbers is Trump's approval rating. Like I said before, you hear all this talk about how it's a good or bad day for Trump. And in reality, all those stories, you can just toss them out because Trump has had probably the... His approval rating is low, but it is the most steady approval rating that you'll ever find in modern polling history for a presidential's for a presidential approval rating. He's basically averaged 42% from the day he was elected to now. It's, there's been ups, there's been downs, there's been all kinds of things, but the average is 42%. Every other president has seen a, a, a wider band of approval or disapproval, and he basically bounces between maybe 38% and 44%, and that's about it. He's not going to drop below that, and he's not going to really go above 45%. The closer he is to 45, I think, the easier it is for him to get re-elected. But I don't know that he'll actually hit that by Election Day. 42, 43 is probably his, his max. 538 has him at around 42% right now, and Real Clear Politics is showing 43%. So he's right in the middle of his range and that's about where you would expect him to be and you'll note that when you're looking at people who are answering the question of impeach and remove the people who who don't support that who don't support that and don't want him impeached and removed it's right around 42 44%. So it's basically matching his approval rating. And the people who want him impeached it's kind of tracking the other side of that. So there's not a lot, all this entire impeachment thing, none of it is about substance. It's become a polarized issue that's solely about whether or not Donald Trump should be removed. And I think that bears out, when you're looking at some of these averages and how they're narrowing, that makes sense that it's become polarized because these stories and all the leaks the Democrats are trying to use in the media to gin up support for their impeachment effort, they're not having a real impact on any of these numbers. Everything's sort of returning to where it was pre-Ukraine, and it's not close so far in some of these numbers, especially on the impeachment side. But there is support there for Republicans. And so this is really just turning into an impeachment vote of whether to keep or get rid of Trump these hearings aren't having as much of an impact as Democrats want. Now, maybe that'll change once they switch to some of these open hearings, but I tend to think they won't, because when you go back to the Mueller investigation, none of those open hearings had any impact either. The Comey hearings didn't have an impact. When Mueller went and testified before Congress, that didn't have any impact. Democrats have held these artist things where people read off the Mueller report and they're holding productions of it. That's not having any impact. And so a lot of what you're seeing here from the media on this impeachment front and the election are people wish-casting what they want to happen. They want the narrative to be the Republican support and the Senate is crumbling for Trump when in reality the political fundamentals under everything suggest that most of these Republicans shouldn't move. There's no incentive for them to say or do anything because everything is beginning to shift more towards their favor. So most of this is about the House being out over its skis on this matter. They've chosen a path. I'm still not convinced they're actually going to go through with an actual impeachment because if they do they're going to be putting a lot of their moderate members who don't want to do this in dangerous territory where they're not going to be able to talk about the most important issues to them, like health care and jobs and the economy. They're not going to be able to talk about a single one of those things. It'll only be about their vote on impeaching Trump. And that's not where anyone wants to be moving into an election year. So again, this is the media wish-casting what they really want to be happen, and none of it's supported by actual data. When the data in this case is looking at things like the generic ballot, Trump's approval rating, the averages for all of these, the averages for impeachment, and looking at how they all link up together, and they paint this picture that the country is far more divided on this, and they're not giving Democrats the long enough leash that they need to go out and impeach a sitting president. So watch as this dynamic continues. Pelosi is trying as hard as she can to protect her members. Then this process vote, it was important, but she still had to break away on that. So there's not a lot of room here for her to hold these votes and have other people break away. If they try to hold a vote and it doesn't happen, that's going to be pretty demoralizing for the entire Democratic Party. But we could be heading towards that place. I think it's more likely that she just won't hold a vote at all, but I don't know that her base will be allow her to get away with that. They want to have this vote, especially the AOC side of the party, the hard left, the progressives, and the socialists, that they want this vote, even if it's bad politically and hurts a lot of their more moderate members who won in these Trump like areas of the United States. So watch that dynamic as we head into 2020, because it's going to get a lot more dicey and a lot harder for some of these Democrats to continue holding the line for the hard left. After the break, we'll get into the word Latinx, which is the new term pushed by progressives. And we're back talking about Latinx, which is the new progressive Um, lefts especially among whites it's their way of referring to hispanics or latinos and latinas and this new term that they're using is it's just it's ridiculous and it's a form frankly of their version of colonialism or language imperialism i'm borrowing some of the language that they use and talking about some of this because that's really what it is so latin x is a play on the word Latina or Latino. And it it replaces the A or the O at the end of that word with an X. And I started seeing this more and more, especially among some of the, the, um, the, the CNN town halls that focused on gay and transgender issues. And you started seeing where some academics, people on social media... And just all these very, you know, white ivory tower type people started using this term Latinx and they were using it in a way where you see a lot of these people who say my pronouns are A, B, and C. And it's really weird. So I looked it up because I just wondered what it was. In Merriam-Webster, the dictionary had the entire description on it that was pretty helpful. And it's a term that's new as of this century, and it's used among Latin Americans, and I would emphasize the American part of that, because it's a way of signaling nonconformity with gender construction. So Latina and Latino refer respectively to a female or a male. Spanish, as you may know, is one of the romantic romantic languages, and it has a lot of gender-specific ways words are used. Uh, words can take on a feminine or masculine meaning or tense depending on who you're talking to or in what situation. So it's one of the ways in which their language is built, and from that you kind of learn more about their culture. So Latinx is a way of stripping that masculine or feminine versions of those words and putting in a version of it which people where people can reject. The notion of male or female in their language. So, if you want to look that up, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's just a part of the whole pronoun movement. According to Merriam-Webster, it started in the early 2000s and has been building since then. And there are two main problems with this word. The first of them, first up is that no one uses this other than these white liberals and their fancy white ivory towers this is a very white progressive term where they've invented it and no one else used it and there were and we have proof of this because a group called think now a very progressive and leftist group that does a lot of market research on these types of deals they actually did a poll and they did a poll among hispanics and they asked hey what do you prefer to be called that would make sense if you kind of want to know what a people group wants to be called and what they found is that only 2%, 2% of everyone called, polled said that the Latinx term described them. 2%. 98% of people who polled rejected it outright and didn't select it among the options. Most people chose to be called either Hispanic or Latino or a Latina. Between the two of those words, that made up about 68% of the overall poll. So that described just about everyone with a Hispanic background. That's the term that they preferred. A smaller subset chose either their country or their country plus American. So they are Cuban or Venezuelan, or they are Cuban-American or Venezuelan-American, which also makes sense because there are a lot of distinct immigration groups when you hit in places like Florida or parts of Texas where people have that distinct background that sets them apart, and so that defines them. So that's another 18%. Finally, you have people who prefer Chicano or Chicana. So you're back to sort of latino Latino territory, where that's a word unique to them, and they like that. So 6% of people actually said that they just prefer to be called American, and that's what they identified as. So you have all these various things where people prefer that over Latinx. Latinx is not a thing. It was created by white progressives who want to push this new gender-neutral word inside of a language where gender neutrality is not a thing. It's a form of colonialism, as I'm going to get into here. It's cultural colonialism and cultural imperialism by these white progressives. It's a way to take the English language and shove it into a romantic language. You're trying to anglophile, or anglophisize, I think is the word, basically shoving an Anglo-world, an Anglo-Saxon, view of language into one of the romantic languages so spanish or some of the other romantic languages like italian romanian portuguese and french they have this distinctness about them where they have the male and the female words that weave in and out and connect different things and can affect what you're saying depending on who you're saying it to It's distinct to them. As I said, it's how they not just form their language, but it's how they form their culture, their communities, and their countries. The French, in particular, are very protective of French and how it is spoke in the abroad, how it's taught, and everything. It's a very distinct cultural thing to them that they seek to protect, and what you're seeing is these white progressives are coming in, especially from America, and taking American English and shoving it into these Romantic languages to build something new. It's like going in. Uh, the reason I use colonialism is because they call things like Christopher Columbus or the missionaries coming to the New World and converting people as a form of colonialism that strips Native cultures of all their, you know, unique purpose and meaning. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here. They're taking their Americanized version of Hispanic culture that as a white person in these places sees it and shoving it back into this language that doesn't have a place for it. The Romantic languages are not gender neutral. They're romantic for a reason. They have all these various things. And so they're trying to correct a non-problem in these languages, and it's, it's just a new thing. And now they're not only just doing that, they're using it as a term to refer to an entire group. And this should be just absurd on its face when you think about it. Americans already have bad notions when it comes to race and other things, we say we use the word Asian to refer to basically anyone west of Hawaii. We see Asian as applying to everyone from Japan, Korea, China, the Philippines, just everyone who is in that generic area of the world is Asian. African is everybody from and the entire African continent. And you know you have all these different European groups that we actually do more to split out, but now we just see most of them as white. And it's just a really dumb way to look at the world because none of these broad groups as we see them are actually those broad groups. The Japanese and Chinese see each other as completely different, as do the Koreans, the Philippines. People in Aust- Australia don't see them connected as to that area of the world in terms of race. They're unique and they're doing their own thing. And so it's just... We're taking our notions of how to drive race and to drive gender and trying to shove it into these other languages and cultures, which is not a good thing. It's not a good way to build trust in these communities and to allow these communities to exist as they have. It's not a form of cultural conservation. You're not allowing these unique things and languages and cultures to exist and to thrive. You're trying to shove everyone into one big group and make them all one. In a way, what they're trying to do is to make the Hispanic community to be similar to the black community. And they're doing that basically solely on color, because you really can't do that. The black community in America has its own unique thing. It is one of the only communities in all of America that had... The unique thing of slavery forced onto it and then also combined with a long history of the Jim Crow racism, which spanned centuries. This was unique to them and it forced them into, no matter what their background, no matter where they came from, they were driven into their own community through just harassment, slavery, and all everything that came with that, that made them into their own unique community, which is why you see a lot of block voting and a lot of block behavior, because they were forced into their own community. They were not allowed to join regular society, and that makes them different. When you hit a lot of these other Hispanic or Asian cultures, a lot of it was different for them. The Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans were all treated differently and came at different times. They're not just a blanket Asian group. They're all different. It's the same thing for a lot of these Hispanic communities. Venezuelans and Cubans see the world a lot differently than people who come from Mexico or some of these South American countries, and they all see themselves as different, not just as this block, big Hispanic community. And so Democrats are trying to shoehorn this same thing through. And it's just, it's not the right way to see things. I think one of the better proposals I've seen recently is that we just need to scrap some of the questions we have on the census of asking about race and just ask people where they came from because it would give us a better idea of the breakdown in the country. You can ask, you know, white, black, or Hispanic, but that's not going to tell you, oh, we have people from Venezuela here, we have all these other different people here. Because that's more important to know than just a generic race. Because generic race doesn't tell you much. Because all these different groups see themselves differently. And I'm far afield from where we started on Latinx. But Latinx is a blanket term that is wrongly being used to throw blanketly over an entire group for which it's not applicable And the original way which it was used was just to refer to people who wanted a gender-neutral word. So, it's a messy word that's messing up one of the Romantic languages. It'll probably be used in other Romantic languages as these progressives try to figure out more ways to strip some of the uniqueness out of some of these languages and cultures and make everyone like them all one with the same progressive mind. So... It's a very annoying word to see, but if you pay attention, you'll see it in a lot of these debates and a lot of these town halls. I know when somebody pointed it out to me, I was shocked to see it, and I'm even more shocked to see them continue to use it when you know that only 2% of the entire Hispanic population actually thinks that that word does a good job of applying to them. So that'll do it for today's show. Questions, comments, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information for the show notes, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at dvonci. Look for my next column to come out on Monday at the Conservative Institute, and make sure to sign up for the newsletter. And you'll get all my columns and other writing in your inbox at the end of each week on Friday morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. If you liked or enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out in the rankings. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.